I want to correct something. You know, it's, it's funny because we'll talk about uh, not being in the law, you know, so much. And then we'll also talk about the tithe, which is a part of the law. And, um, and the reason that we do this, and I, as the words were coming out of my mouth last week, this was the, Lord, the Holy Spirit was kind of correcting me in this. If the law says that, that you need to give 10% to God, right? And so what um, people who don't know how to think think um, is, well, praise God, if the 10% law isn't part of the New Testament you know, covenant or law, I don't have to give anything. And if that's how you're thinking, you've, you're lost your mind. And so that's not it. it the, the reason that we've broken free from the law is because the law said to give a 10% tithe to the Lord, right? The new covenant says that law has been removed, and so now you're given the grace to give 30, 40, 50, early church, 100% because there's no law restraining you at 10. Do you see what I'm saying? So when you're released from the law of 10%, suddenly you're free to give extravagantly. So we see the law as something that, that forced us to give 10%. That's not what the law was. The law was something that restrained us at 10%. So when that's removed, we're set free to give more and abundantly. So I want to encourage you, if you're watching this, uh, I want to encourage you, Holy Spirit, I pray you bring conviction right now. Um, but everybody that listens to this um, on podcast, all thousands of you from all over the country and all over the world that listen to this, this is going to stay on the podcast this week. I want to encourage you to give. Um, because it, it obviously, one, it costs money to, to put this stuff out there, but two, the Lord's doing some amazing things, and the stock market is awful. So it, invest in something that will give you a return. You know what I'm saying? Definitely don't invest in crypto right now, Lord. Um, anyway, that was a little joke. But we're going to give, and so is anybody giving in the person in, in the service tonight? Everybody here tonight is, is, is online givers usually. So, Angela, are you giving them in person? I can always count on Angela. Um, and Tim. If Tim's, if Tim's here, he's giving in person too. So I'll just leave this right here. If anybody needs it, it's right there. All right, here we go. John 14. Let me read it first, actually, because I want you to be thinking about um, what comes to mind when you hear this passage. All right, so John 14. I'm going to start at verse 1. If you've ever been to a, a funeral or um, apparently some people read this at weddings, I found out this week. It's kind of weird to me, but anyway. Uh, but if you've been in a funeral, you've definitely heard this uh, read and uh, out of context. So, John 14, let me, uh, let, actually, let me back up to John 13, and I'm going to start at verse 34. John 13, 34. Everybody good? Awesome. Here we go. Um, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Amen. I'm not preaching on that, but that gives us some good context. 36. Peter, Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Okay, so for Peter, can you imagine that? It's like, my Lord, thanks a lot. Um, sometimes I wish, you know, I could say that around town, you know, like, hey, brother, you go to church anywhere? Oh, yeah, I go to church anywhere. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny him three, you know. Um, <laughs> so verse 14, this is what I want to uh, teach on. So Jesus, Peter says, can I go with you? No, but you can later, etc. Verse four, Chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. Okay, verse 2. My father's house. If you have a pen... That's where you need to circle. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now in context, where is that? 
my father's house, right? Is that y'all good? So verse four, you know the way to the place where I am going. The next part is amazing. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well from now on. <clears throat> from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, well, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. All of that is, is huge, huge. So if you have your brains turned on, get ready for, for a little PhD course. All right. One of the things that Yahweh's redeeming in me with the help of the Holy Spirit and honestly a lot of scholars is the relationship between the triune God and us, humanity. He's redeeming that in me. What I mean is we read our preconceived ideas into the Bible and honestly everything else that we do. It's not a bad thing, it's just what we do. For example, you guys that are here tonight, Y'all know how I think at this point. Most of you know how I think, right? If, if anybody out there said, what do you believe Josh thinks about this? Most of you could probably give him a, a pretty accurate answer. Y'all know how I think, okay? So if I gave you a book that I just finished writing, no matter what that book said, you would look for traits of my thinking throughout and read my thinking through what you know of me prior to reading my book. In other words, if I wrote you a book right now, and uh, Matt, could you bump this mic up just a little bit? I feel like I'm screaming. Um, just a hair, just a hair. Um, thank you, thank you. So if I gave you a book that I just finished writing, you would open it up, and as you read that book, no matter what it said, you would have a preconceived thought process when reading through that book because you know how I think. Because you know me before you know the book, you're approaching that book with a bias. And that's fine. That's not a bad thing, okay? <clears throat> Likewise, we approach the Bible, prayer, worship, the church, etc., through all of the ideas that we have preconceived are true. Therefore, we look for certain things, more accurately, certain proofs of our preconceived ideas when approaching them. We are never truly unbiased. And this isn't necessarily bad, except we are now millenniums. A millennium is a thousand years, so we're multiple thousands of years away from when the Bible was written. And what changes dramatically over that amount of time. What's one thing, no wrong answers, I guess, but what's one thing that changes dramatically over 2,000 years, for example? Culture, right? Is that, well, we're, that's not what anybody was going to say, right? I was just saying big questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> culture. Our culture today Think of somebody in New York City. If you took somebody in New York City and you placed them in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, right? You talk about like, you know, it, it's, it doesn't fit, right? Because the culture is so different. So our culture is dramatically different than that of the Bible. And culture is one of the primary ways we preconceive our thoughts. So for example... And everything I'm about to say is I, I love this stuff about America. So this is not like saying this is a bad thing. I'm just, this is an example. For example, America is a free country where everyone chooses their destiny and their choices ultimately determine their outcome. It's a great thing. 
So if someone ends up in a bad place, for example, we kind of wash our hands of it and say, they should have made better choices because that's what America is. You are what you have chosen to do, okay? Our society is individualistic. It's all about how I can get to the top, my money, my time, my legacy, my possessions, etc. Our society is made up of the haves and the have-nots. Our economic system is capitalism, which gives private companies complete control, ultimately creating a greater and greater chasm between the upper and lower class. This is just how we are. It's also, however, it also creates a compounding wealth and poverty, meaning that because of us being in a capitalist society, the gap between the rich and the poor actually grows greater with every single generation, making it harder for those in the bottom to make it to the top. Quick example. So if I make $10 million in my life and Veda inherits all of my possessions when I die, she starts with an inheritance of $10 million. And let's say she takes that $10 million and just invests it. And then when she dies, that $10 million is $80 million. And then her kids inherit $80 million. So they're starting with $80 million. So that compounds, unless somebody makes a horrible decision and wastes everything or whatever, that compounds every generation. So every generation of the rich get richer and richer and richer and richer and richer, right? If you reverse that with the poor... Um, let's say I have absolutely nothing but debt because I'm poor. So when I die, let's say I have $10,000 in debt, right? Well, when I die, guess who inherits my debt? My daughter. So now Veda is starting $10,000 in the hole. Do you see what I'm saying? And let's say because she started there, I couldn't afford for her to go to college. I couldn't afford for her to have a great job. So all she's done is work at McDonald's her whole life. But because of that, when she needed a car, she went and got a loan. And so now she's $50,000 in debt. So then her kids are born and they inherit $50,000 in the hole. So every generation, it compounds, right? And that's America. So America is amazing because you have the freedom to make this whatever you want it to be. It's amazing, right? We choose who's president. We choose who's leading us. We choose what we do with our life. We choose what college we go to, et cetera, right? But on the flip side of capitalism is this, this thing we never talk about, which is there is an ever-widening gap between those on the top and those on the bottom, right? And so the reason why we are uh, 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 looking after you know, the poor is so much more than throwing them a meal every now and then is because there has to be a great amount of charity given from those who have a lot in order to bring those at the bottom at equal levels, which is why it doesn't happen, okay? This is not a history lesson. If Brandon was here, he could give you a lot more details because this is what he's majoring in. Here's my point. I'm not against this system or our culture. I love our culture. I love being in America. I'm a great, I support America. I love it. But I'm simply giving you a picture of our systems and our culture. Now, think of how we approach the Bible. For example, what defines, in our thinking, what defines someone's salvation into the family of God? Their life choices. That's what we think. Why do we think that? Because our culture is built as a culture, that your destiny is defined by your life choices. Right? Just an example. Religion is all about the haves and the have-nots. And the haves remain the haves due to, we may we call it, religious capitalism. The leaders of the system are in control, thus creating greater gaps between those who are in and those who are out. Here's an example. If you pick up a gospel track, the one Emily sent on the group was perfect for this. If you pick up a gospel track, it'll have the verse in Romans 3 that says, um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's a, ma- a major problem with that. That's not even the whole sentence. Here's what the sentence says. Okay? Romans 3. I'm just, we got time. Okay. <clears throat> For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, why on earth would we not finish that sentence? In fact, I believe it's heresy if you pick up a gospel track and it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and there's a period there. Right? I mean, that, that's heresy. So people call me a heretic. At least I read whole sentences. But, you know what I'm saying? But, it, but, you know, if you, but if you pick up that, all, bro, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, that's, that's half the gospel. The actual gospel is, but all have been justified freely through Christ Jesus. Okay? But the reason we stop there is because, in our minds, if we can keep people under the oppression of all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we can force them to come to church. We can force them to tithe. We can force them to be good, have good morals. We can force them to marry the people we want them to marry and go to the colleges we want them to go to and be around the people that we want them to be around because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But praise God, the church is the salvation. No, 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 no. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus brought salvation to those who had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And now the church is the steward of the justification and redemption, not the sinners. You see what I'm saying? So even the thing about this, you know, I can't go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there. All the pastors that say, that's right, all of us are hypocrites. You know, y'all heard, heard that? You should come. I'm hypocrite. I'm, I'm sinner number one. That's a, that's a huge problem that you're preaching. You know what I'm saying? Now, I know, it's, I know what people mean when they say that, you know, just, just trying to be cool. But, but, no, 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 you're not a hypocrite and you're not a sinner. I'm not. I'm not a hypocrite or a sinner. And that's not prideful. That's just real. Or else Jesus meant absolutely nothing. If I'm still a sinner today, then you have to take your whole Bible and just throw it in the garbage. For Christ died while we were still sinners. What's the point of Christ dying while we were still sinners is if after his death we're still sinners. The only reason Christ dying while we were still sinners matters is if after he was raised, there was a difference in identity in those who were once sinners. But we never heard that gospel because we're in a different culture. Okay, So that's how we read the Bible. The example I would love to give you, and I'm gonna, I'm, I just read it tonight, is this in John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house, it has many rooms. King James, I believe, says many mansions. There's nowhere in the, any of the original. But anyway, my Father's house has many rooms. The other word could be dwelling places. Okay? If that were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'll come back and take you to be with me, and you also will be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. When I say that verse, those set of verses, what, just what comes to your mind? Heaven. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? Right? So if I, where's Jesus going? We would say, he's going to heaven. Why is he going to heaven? He's going to heaven to prepare a mansion for me. Where, a mansion where? In glory. And then what's he going to do when he builds your mansion? He's going to come back. He's going to take me away to heaven, and then I'm going to live in my mansion. If you don't believe me, if you open up just a typical hymn book and just start skimming through the lyrics of the hymn book, I'm just I'm quoting lyrics of hymns we've sung for hundreds of years. And there's one gigantic problem with that. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. So I'm going to prove it to you because none of y'all maybe believe me. You're just shaking your head. So that's okay. How do you think or process about that passage? It's heaven. It's my mansion. And the reason is, is because our culture, our culture, the ultimate idea and goal of life is to be rich have a big house, have a good family, have a bunch of land, have a big retirement, and it doesn't matter if you're happy on your way there. It doesn't matter if you have joy on your way. It sure don't matter if you're part of church on the way there as long as you get there. And we'll fight to have something that a lot of people have right now and are depressed and suicidal. You know what I'm saying? 
I mean, it's amazing. Even me as a pastor, the, the thing that I struggle with is not whether or not I'm supposed to be here. The thing I struggle with is do I have, should I be further financially than I am right now? And the only reason I think like that is because the culture around me says there's a certain standard that a 30-year-old should be at. You know what I mean? And I'm here to set you free of that. That there, there is, There's one standard. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and anything else you need will be given to you. The Old Testament ideas that we have about God are because of what? Our culture. I said this Tuesday night. We view God as the Greek god Zeus. God is sitting up on his throne. He's got lightning bolts in his hand, which ironically is images of Zeus, the Greek god. Lightning bolts. So if you've seen Thor, the new Thor movie, the lightning bolt is the main thing of, of Zeus. So anyway, is the picture of God that we have is Zeus up in the heavens, sitting waiting for us to either do everything that he said and live or do wrong and be struck dead. And we see Jesus as Hercules in the story and we see the devil as Hades in the story. You know what I'm saying? And that's how we view God. We view God in a religious sense. God is distant. We are here. And the whole goal of life is to try to get our way back to where God is. And if we don't, we're struck dead. Let, all right, let me say one more thing while we're here. This is not even what I'm preaching on, but it's just a handful of night. And I know y'all, so now, now I'm going to say anything. Um, the, even the idea, the devil, let me just help you. The devil, I could say so much about this. I'm going to restrain myself is not the superhuman rival of God. You know what I'm saying? Let me say this. The fake God Zeus, in my opinion, has a lot more power than the devil. And Zeus doesn't exist. Right? I, I, the, the phrase devil is the accuser. We spend so much time talking about the devil, who, oh, by the way, the New Testament says is, is defeated. So in other words, it's us walking around, talking, well, the devil's really on us, or we're just making really bad decisions. The devil's on, man, the devil's on my finances. Or you're making really awful decisions in your finances. Right? You know what I'm saying? Man, the, 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 devil, the devil's just... Or, or you, know, you know what I'm saying? That's all we do. And it's because our culture says there is a Zeus, there is a Hercules, there is a Hades. Ironically, one of the words that's translated hell in the New Testament, you know what it is? Hades. And it's a play on the Greek idea of the place of the dead. It's a lie. <clears throat> all right, all right, all right, all right. But the Bible is not a story of democracy or the perfect religious government. It is the story of family. So to show you this, we're going to take a look at the ancient culture of Israel and the Semitic culture and how it was set up, okay? So Israel's culture was a tribal culture. If you're taking notes, this is it. Because when I get to the end of this, you're going to wish you had taken notes. It's going to redefine the entire Bible for you, what I'm about to say, in an amazing way. Israel's culture was a tribal culture culture. And it was made up of three key categories. And I'm going to break these down, three categories for you to remember, okay? Number one, let me write these down, because when I say them, you're going to not have a clue how to spell them, because I didn't know how to spell them. So um, let me break these down, okay? Israel's tribal culture. That's what it was. And it's not just Israel, it's all the, what we call the Semitic people. So um, all the people around Israel as well, ultimately Israel. Okay, so Israel's tribal culture is made up of three key characteristics, okay, or categories. Number one, it's patriarchal, okay? Did I spell that right? Patriarchal. Yes, Okay. So number one is patriarchal. Every one of these categories start with patri, which means father, okay? So number one is patriarchal. Now let me explain what this means before we move on to number two. Y'all good? I don't have a lot tonight. I really don't. I've only got four pages. Normally I have eight so, or seven or eight. 
So I got half of what I normally have. For Israel to be a patriarchal society, it means that the oldest living male in the family was the central member of the family to the structure of the larger society. Okay, I'm going to explain this. It was in this patriarch that the rest of the family found their identity. It was in the patriarch. Who was the patriarch? It was the oldest living male of the family. It was in that patriarch that the rest of the family found their identity. He was the leader, the provider, the protector, and ultimately, listen, responsible for the well-being of the entire family. Here's an example. In, in, in our day and age, if I go out and murder somebody, what happens? The police arrest me. They bring me before a jury that is randomly selected, right? And either a jury or a judge or a combination of those determine my fate as somebody who has murdered someone. That's our culture. So we view God as a judge. We view the angels as his courtroom. And that's how we, we see judgment, right? Well, in Israel... Here's what would happen. If I murder somebody, let's say my dad is in the room. So my dad is the oldest living fan, uh, male of our family. He's not, but let's just say that for example. My dad is the oldest living male of our family. If I go and murder someone in Israel, here's what would happen. The leaders or whoever found me would take me to the father, to the patriarch, and the patriarch would decide what to do as far as judgment for this member of the family that just committed murder. So if the patriarch said they live, leave them alone, they live, leave them alone. If the patriarch says they die, they die. And that, okay, so that, that, is, that is what it means for this to be a patriarchal society. Families live together in what is a Hebrew word. Let me write this down so you have this too. This is going to sound like a lot, but when I tie it all together, it's not going to be, okay? The families live together in what is called a betab, a betab, okay? It's spelled like this, B-E-T with a little V on top, and then an A-B with a smiley face, okay? This is what it is in Hebrew. It's a betab. They lived in this, and I'm going to show you a picture of it. Not yet, Matt, but in a second, I'll show you a picture of it. They lived together in a betab. This was a father's household or the father's house. Starting to click. And was kind of like a compound, if you will, where families of this particular family, all the families of this one family, lived together under the patriarch's care. The family shared their resources and the family shared their fate. Okay, so when you're buried, you're buried in a specific place so that when the rest of the family dies, they too are laid to rest with you. That's why if you go to Joseph in Egypt, Joseph and Jacob both make the, the what would ultimately be the children of Israel, make them swear that when they leave Egypt and go back to the promised land, that they'll take their bones and bury them there. If you go back and read this in Genesis, why in the world would he say that? It's because the society they lived in, the family lived and died together as one. Okay? So that's number one. It's patriarchal. Number two, it's patrilineal. Let me spell this. Okay? Patrilineal. Everybody good? <clears throat> patrilineal means that the tracing of ancestral descent and therefore your family or tribal identification and inheritance was through the male line. The importance of our connection, for example, to Adam in Romans 5 is a huge piece that we have missed that you don't understand unless you understand Israel's culture. When, when Paul is writing in Romans 5 and he connects us to Adam, thus ultimately connecting us to what he calls the second or last Adam, what Paul is doing is he's placing us in the lineage of our father who is Adam. 
Why would he do that? In order to say what I've taught before, what happens to the patriarch happens to the family. So if Christ becomes the second Adam and through him redemption comes, where else does redemption go? To the entire family. So Paul has to place us first in the batab of Adam so that when Jesus comes in as the second and last and final Adam, we understand that because we're in the house, what's happened to the patriarch now flows down to you and I. So that's patrilineal. You know who someone is based on who the patriarch is. Number three, last one. They are patrilocal. Patrilocal. Okay, so I'm I'm going to teach all this because this is how you can approach the whole Old Testament and everything will start to make sense, I promise. To be patrilocal means that the living space of the family unit was together. So Matt, throw it up here. Okay, this picture is of an excavated, I mean, this is the actual outline of an excavated betab in Israel, okay? So, um, man, I wish I had a little pointer, but I don't. Uh, Let me just jump up here. If you're watching online, I'm sorry for what I'm doing. All right, if you look, the outline right here would be a a literal uh, wall built up to protect the family compound, if you will. I hate using that word, but that's the only word I know how to use. Within that would be all of the dwelling places of the family, okay? So the family lived within the batab, central to that compound would be where the patriarch lived. And so the family within that compound shared everything they had, they shared everything they gained, they shared everything that they won, whether it be in war or whatever, they shared every single thing that they had with the rest of the family because the family unit was one even to the point that they live together in one batab. Does that make sense? My point in teaching you this is that there, this is what the Bible writers have in mind when they are writing all the stories that they're writing. It's not enough to read what they wrote. We must know how they thought to adequately grasp what they wrote. So in this, this, this batab, there is a reality taking place that Yahweh decides to meet and let himself be known through that if we don't get this, we miss stuff like this. So so God could have made himself known in any way he wanted to, but he chose the Israel-Semitic culture in order to make himself known to the world. He could have been made known through anyone, but he chose Israel. Right? So he meets them where they are and he leverages their culture in order to tell us a story that you and I probably have never seen in our lives. So let me read this one more time. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. That I'm, would I have told me, told you, excuse me, that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you with me, where? To the Father's household, that you also may be where I am. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, by the way, this is before the cross. So he's not saying, I'm going to heaven. He's saying, I'm going to the cross. I'm about to go into the Father's house, prepare a place for you. And then when I prepare a place for you in resurrection, I'm going to come back to you and take you there. Take us where? To heaven? To the Father's house. The patriarch. And if you're in the Father's house, what are you defined by? 
the Father. So, so in this culture, no one is individual. No one. You are identified by your family. And your family is identified by the patriarch of the family. This, this is huge. Y'all, I think y'all, most of y'all are missing this. Okay. So let me, read, let, me, let me tell you a story real quick. How many of you have heard the story of Hosea and Gomer? So Hosea and Gomer, really awesome story. Now that you have this in mind, I want you to think of this. Hosea is a prophet of the Lord. I'm not going to read it. Maybe. I might. I don't think I'm going to read it. I'll just tell you. Hosea is a prophet of the Lord. He's a holy man, right? The Lord goes to Hosea and he says, Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. What? You know, why am I, why do that? And he says, because Israel, let me just read it, let me just read it. The Lord began to speak through Hosea, the prophet. Go marry a promiscuous woman, a prostitute, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty, guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblame, excuse me, and she conceived and bore him a son. Go marry a prostitute. Now, how many of you believe that there is a woman, especially in this culture, the Semitic culture, but even today, how many of you believe that there is any woman on planet Earth that wakes up one morning and says, you know what I want to do with my life? I'm going to be a prostitute. It's going to be amazing. Nobody does that, right? Especially in this culture. I mean, today we've kind of gotten to the point where because we're so into everybody and just do whatever they want and be whatever they want and who cares and all that stuff, you know what? Uh, I get myself in so much trouble. You know what has lately just drove me up the wall? The pronouns thing. Oh. What are your pronouns? Well, I could, I could tell by looking at you what your pronouns are, brother or sister, and it ain't he or she. So anyway, um, brother, that's not loving. No, that is loving. It's telling the truth. God, you know, God cannot be mocked. So anyway, <laughs> um, how did I even, how did I even get there? So, oh, because in our culture, that a promiscuous woman is almost celebrated, right? We need to honor their way of making an income. And they're also on 55 antidepressants. You know what I'm saying? Um, but we don't care about that. So anyway, in this culture, though, you, to be a promiscuous woman is essentially to sign yourself up for the bottom of the pile. I mean, you are on the bottom of culture. You know what I'm saying? There's no lower than a promiscuous woman in that culture. So Hosea and Gomer is a story that for most of our lives has been about Hosea. Man, Hosea is just an amazing, and he is an amazing, he went and married who? Look at that guy. And the Lord does the same for us. She is nothing, but Hosea had the grace to marry her, and that's what Jesus did for us. We were, we're nothing. You know what I'm saying? And we've missed that the story of Hosea and Gomer is not about Hosea. It's about Gomer. Prove it. Hosea goes to Gomer. Now, I want you to understand, Gomer did not wake up one day and say, well, brother, I just want to go be a prostitute. See you all later. Gomer being a prostitute is a sign that she has been by the patriarch dying, by her husband dying, by her kids dying, we don't know. But something has happened in her life to get her out of the batab. And when you're out of that, in that culture, a woman, the only way a I'm not saying it's the right culture, I'm just saying, the only way a woman is provided for is to be within a batab. A woman can't go out and just get a job and earn money and all that stuff. That's not how this culture works. You, as a woman, in this culture, and again, I'm not supporting this, whatever, I'm just saying this is the truth of this culture. You, as a woman, in this culture, are provided for by, ultimately, the patriarch. So if you're out of the patab, then you have no way, as a woman, of providing for yourself except one way, prostitution. So Gomer, through whatever has happened in her life, has found herself out of the family compound, and now she's faced with a choice. Either I die, or I do whatever I have to do in order to make a living so that I can eat. Prostitute. So the Lord goes to Hosea, a holy man, and he says, I want you to go marry her. What would this have done to Gomer? 
Hosea and Gomer being married does something really significant to Gomer because in this culture, when a woman marries a man, she leaves her own batab and is joined to her husband's batab. So the husband's patriarch is now responsible for the husband's wife. So Gomer is now outside of the batab. You're going to hate this word at the end. And she marries Hosea, which means she's brought into Hosea's. And in one act, she goes from being absolutely nothing with absolutely nothing to now being completely provided for and protected. On top of that, this is what the Lord says. So he, uh, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. Why is that so important? By her, and she does, if you keep reading, she has sons. By her having sons, not only is she in the family, she has complete security for the rest of her life. Why? Because if something happens to the patriarch and Hosea becomes the patriarch, Hosea is going to take care of the family. What if something happens to Hosea? The son, the oldest son, steps up and becomes the patriarch. What happens to that son? The next, you see what I'm saying? So she has lines of patriarchs lined up to take care of her the rest of her life. Now, see, now you're seeing something in the story of Hosea and Gomer you didn't see before. This is massive. So Gomer goes into Hosea Batab. She's married. She has the kids. But because there is something within her that still hasn't conformed to what she's actually been through, what most of us experience is this. The Lord will so bless you that you'll see your past and say, there's no way I'm worthy of this. And you'll almost start to go back to your past. So Gomer, realizing what has just happened, goes back to prostitution. One problem. Because of everything that's happened to her through this marriage and having kids, now she's not even worthy of being a prostitute. And she finds herself on the lowest absolute ring of the culture ladder, and that is slave. So she's being auctioned off as a slave, and God goes to Hosea, and what does he say? The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves Israel, the Israelites, through they, though they turn to other gods and love their sacred raisin cakes. God forbid this, the raisin cakes. And uh, I'm just playing, I'm just playing culture, see? Right? I hate raisin cakes. So anyway, that, that'd be good for me. Um, why does he say to Hosea, go marry your wife? I, I think I was telling Isaiah this yesterday. See, we read this and we say the Lord's going to Hosea. He doesn't really need to go marry his wife again. But the Lord goes to Hosea and essentially says, Hosea, I, I think you need to go get your wife again. It's going to be a prophetic symbol. I think you need to go get your wife. That's the right thing to do. You don't have to, but I really think you should. You know what I mean? And Hosea goes, and Hosea, man, Hosea is such a good guy. Lord, he's such an amazing man, you know? And he is. The Israelite law required that if someone is in the batab, the patriarch is responsible for them, no matter what their decisions are, whether or not they're faithful or unfaithful. So it was Hosea's responsibility to go get his wife back. It wasn't just the grace of Hosea that said, I think I'm gonna go show love to my wife again. No, because he married her, it was his own responsibility to go and get what was his. So, so was it the grace and love of Jesus? Sure. Or was it the fact that in Genesis 15, when he promises Abraham and makes a covenant with him, and there's a pot and there's fire that's going, a smoke and fire that's going over the blood path. And Abraham has nothing to do with either of those. When that's going over the blood path and God makes a covenant to Abraham and his descendants, what does the, the, uh, the New Testament say? All who believe, all who are given the faith to believe are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. All of us, right? So that Abraham's descendants 
would be in covenant with God on behalf of God himself on both sides. That's what Genesis 15 is all about. So Genesis 15, the covenant that God entered into with Abraham and his kids was that they were in God's batab, which made the father, the patriarch of the family that Abraham and his descendants were in. So when we lost our mind, it, wasn't, it was the grace and love of God that came and got us, but it was the covenant that God made that placed us in the house that came and got us when we left the house. So just like when Gomer leaves Hosea's house, the Lord shows up to Gomer and he said to him, go show your love to your wife again. There's not a question. There's not a suggestion. That is a command. He doesn't say, I think. He says, go show your love to your wife again. Can you see this in Jesus? We're losing our ever loving minds. And he said, it is grace and love. But it's the patriarch's responsibility to get the kids back in. It's the groom's responsibility to get the wife back in. And that's why I used language last week like imputed salvation. Nobody called that. Nobody called me this week because I knew nobody knew what imputed meant. You know what I'm saying? I specifically, there's, see, there's a lot of time in these messages, I'll say things absolutely on purpose. Nobody ever gets. That's okay. I say it so that future generations will think back one day and say, I know what he was doing. Um, that was one of those. When I said that last week, imputed salvation. What does that mean? That means salvation is given to you and I. That means when salvation is accomplished on the cross, it is imputed to you and I. We didn't do anything to get it. It was given to us. But I didn't say imputed righteousness, which is also the case. I also added imputed salvation, which I've never heard anybody teach and is absolutely right though. Because imputed salvation means that we're brought into the batab without your or my saying it. That's, that's going to cause a lot, of, a lot of problems, right? You can be in the family compound and live like you're an absolute worthless prostitute if you want. But you're in the family compound, and you don't have to live like that, and that's the message of salvation. You, you see what I'm saying? The, the message of salvation has nothing to do with get, doing away with people's decisions. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that no one has to decide whether to follow Jesus. I'm saying you absolutely have to decide to follow Jesus. I'm putting that decision in its right place. Your decision to follow Jesus has implications on you living the life of Jesus now. But just so you know, Jesus did not fail when he did what he came to do. I have come to seek and save that which was lost. Did he? Here's another example. If I ask you what separates us from God, you would say sins. Nine times out of 10, you would probably also say that Jesus forgave every sin, past, present, and future. Which is it? <laughs> huh? Brother, what, in any, what separates us from God? It's sin. What did Jesus do on the cross? Forgive every sin, past, present, and future. So that there's, there is no sin, then I guess we're not separate from God. You know, Right? So when Jesus teaches this in John 14, he is pointing back to all of these stories. Go back to the story of Ruth and Boaz. Now that you know the culture, go back. Naomi and Ruth are absolutely poor. They're gleaning on the... Why are they poor? Because Elimelech, the husband, died, and Mahalan and the other son died. There's no patriarch, which means Naomi and Ruth are messed up. They're screwed except Boaz comes in as the kinsman redeemer and brings them into his patriarchal betab. You see, Jesus is all over that, okay? I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. We must see the story, Isaiah, you can help up here, of the Bible as a story of a family, there's no other way of seeing it. It's a story of a family. I'm going to read this. This is from Dr. Sandra Richter. 
She, uh, she graduated from, Har- uh, from Asbury Theological Seminary, but she's a professor at Harvard, Harvard now. I, I, I've been reading this, and it's amazing. It's called The Epic of Eden. Go check it out. But let me, let me read what she wrote right here um, in these couple of paragraphs, because what she's about to say is going to basically sum up everything I've said over the past hour. <clears throat> she says, In Israel's tribal society, redemption... If you haven't heard anything else I've said all, all night, I want you to hear this. In Israel's tribal society... Redemption was the act of a patriarch who put his own resources on the line, listen, to ransom a family member who had been driven to the margins of society, listen, by poverty, who had been seized by an enemy against whom he had no defense, who found themselves enslaved by the consequences of a faithless life. Redemption was the means by which a lost family member was restored to a place of security within the kinship circle. This was a patriarch's responsibility. This was the safety net of Israel's society, and this is the backdrop of Eden, in which we now, as New Testament believers, find ourselves. Now, I want you to hear this. Can you hear the metaphor of Scripture? Yahweh is presenting himself as the patriarch of the clan who has announced his intent to redeem his lost family members. Not only has he agreed to pay whatever ransom is required, but he has sent the most cherished member of his household to accomplish his intent, his firstborn son. And not only is the firstborn coming to seek and save the lost, but he is coming to share his inheritance with these who have squandered everything they have been given. His goal, listen, why is he doing this? To restore the lost family members to the betab so that where he is, they may also be. This is why we speak of each other as brother and sister. While we know God as Father, while we call ourselves the household of faith, God is beyond human gender and our relationship to Him beyond blood. But the tale of redemption history comes to us in the language of this patriarchal society. Father God is buying back his lost children by sending his eldest son, his heir, to give his life, as Matthew 28 uh, 28 says, as a ransom for many, so that we, the alienated, might be adopted as sons and share forever in the inheritance of this firstborn of all creation. What language does the New Testament use? It calls us brothers and sisters, it calls us adopted into sonship. It calls Jesus the firstborn among many brethren, right? Jesus introduces the father as the father. It had never been known as the father before Jesus comes on the scene and calls him father, right? He doesn't come and say Yahweh. He comes and says father. And he calls us brothers and sisters. And he calls the church his bride. Why is he using this language? Because Jesus goes to the cross in order to pay whatever the cost, Hosea and Gomer, whatever the cost is to get you off of the slave block and back into the house. Jesus goes to the cross to pay whatever that debt is, whatever that ransom is, whatever language you want to say. He goes to the cross and then in resurrection, he says, come home. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be also. But I'm gonna come back to you. And this is how the scene plays out after this. Jesus goes to the cross and he dies. And he's raised and he goes back to them. And when he goes back to them, what does he say? He says, stay here until you receive the promised inheritance. Which is what? The Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So in Acts 2, they're all together in one place. And the Spirit invades 
and gives them the very life of God, which is what Adam and Eve had in Genesis 2. But it was never designed to be contained in Genesis 2. The design was for them to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth with the same thing. I I cannot tell you how massive what I just said is in the past hour. Massive. Now, when you approach the Old Testament and you see punishment, you see the patriarch trying to make sure the family within the compound stays the family within the compound. Right? When Abraham and Lot get separated in Genesis, when Abraham and Lot get separated, Lot chooses to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a, right before Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, there's a, there's a scene that takes place where Lot, Sodom is taken over by a bunch of different kings, and Lot is, is in a really bad place. And Abraham gets word. Somebody sneaks out of all of what's going on in Sodom and goes to Abraham and says, Lot, your nephew is in trouble. Now, why are they going to Abraham to tell Abraham that Lot's in trouble? It's not just because they're related and maybe Abraham can help. It's because Abraham is the patriarch of the family. It's Abraham's responsibility to go get Lot. I, do, you, do you see? Like, I, I, okay. Do you see that? Huh? So Abraham takes all of his resources all of his men and goes in to fight for Lot. Abraham literally risked every single thing he owned to go get Lot out of trouble. Why? Because it's his responsibility. His father was in Haran. He had two sons. The other son dies and the father dies, which makes Abraham the oldest living male in the family and the patriarch. Uh, do Do you understand this? Also, why did the oldest son in a family receive a double portion blessing? For example, an example of this is on Christmas morning, uh, when you wake up, you know, depending on how you grew up, for the most part in America, when you wake up, um, you run to the living room or wherever the Christmas tree is, and there's just a pile of presents, and you open them, and it's like, great. Can you imagine having a brother or a sister? Let's say brother used their society language. Um. Can you imagine having an older brother and you wake up on Christmas morning and you run you know, downstairs or whatever to wherever you're doing this. And when you get there, you have your pile, but then your, uh, your oldest brother's pile is twice as big. See, in our society, we'd be like, that's not fair. I know he's older than me, but my Lord, like, you know what I'm saying? Why did the oldest son receive a double portion? In the story of the lost son, the prodigal son, we call him, the redeemed heir. In that story, the father gives the youngest son his inheritance. He gives the oldest son a double portion of the inheritance. Why? Because one day the oldest son would be the patriarch. So the oldest son received a double portion of everything, not for himself. He received a double portion of everything because one day what that oldest son had would be what sustained the rest of the batab. So Jesus becomes mankind in the incarnation. And as the oldest son, Lord, I could teach this all night. He goes to baptism. Well, in that culture, typically what would happen when a father was ready to turn over the family business to the son is he would take him down to the water. He would baptize him. When the son rose up, the father would announce over the son, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the son would take over. Jesus goes down and says, I must be baptized. You've never sinned. This isn't about sin. This is about receiving the family business. And it ain't carpentry either. So Jesus is baptized by John, raised out of the water. The spirit descends and remains like a dove. And the father says what? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What happens? Before that moment, Jesus does no miracles. Jesus has done no ministry. From that moment to the rest of his life, what is he doing? Ministry. Why? Because Jesus in that moment received the inheritance in order to be the patriarch for Adam's 
mankind. Here's the crazy thing though. Jesus, listen, listen. He received a double portion. A double portion of what? What fell on Jesus at his baptism? The Spirit. Which will really start messing with you. If the fullness of God dwelled within Christ, how did he receive what he already had? Anyway, I'll let you, I'll let you go ponder, ponder that. All right. Um, Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, okay? And when he does, he goes out and does what no one's ever done before. The miracles, the signs, the wonders, etc. What does he say? And I just read this in John 14. What does he say to his disciples and to us? He says, me going to the Father is a great thing, blah, 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 blah. I tell you, anybody who believes in me will do the works I've been doing and what? And greater. Greater. Now, we talked about this last week. He's raised up out of the water. The spirit falls, remains like a dove. He goes through, does his ministry. He dies and he says, I go to prepare a place for you. This is a great thing. I'm gonna come back and take you to my father's household. Amazing thing. What happens when the patriarch dies is the next one up who has been receiving a double portion steps up and becomes the patriarch. Jesus dies, rises again, ascends to the Father, and we receive what when he ascends? The Holy Spirit to do what? Greater. Not just what he did, greater. We Maybe we could say double portion of the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. The same resources that flowed through the family when Christ operated in that patriarchal role as the incarnation now flows through the church as it operates in the same role. So our call is to go to the world. This is why we teach. You know, People don't know why they evangelize. And get the kids back, not because it's just something we should do. It's our responsibility. And the only way we're going to ever be able to do that is if you and I first understand that that's where we are. So this is not about morals. Anything that you read in here that you receive morals out of, you can just wipe that clean and start reading this through the preconceived idea of Batab. If you're gonna, it's okay to approach the Bible with a preconceived idea as long as it's the right preconceived idea. You know what I'm saying? So if you, if you approach the Bible trying to find an angry, wrathful God that's going to destroy all the, all the bad people and condemn them to a burning hell forever, you can find that in the Bible. You can, it's out of context, but you can find it. You know what I'm saying? Because that's your preconceived idea. What if you approach the Bible with the right preconceived idea? Now you start reading those same exact passages, but you start seeing something you didn't see before. And it's redemption. So that's why Origen talks about, and I, again, I don't agree with everything. Origen, I'm almost done. There we go. That's why Origen talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, was it not a good thing that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? Because when Christ died and descended into Sheol, for the Hebrew, place of the dead, when he did that, he ministered to those who died in Sodom and ransomed them. Which is what Ezekiel says when he says, Sodom will be returned to her former glory. What former glory? Certainly he was not talking about the prostitution and the lust and the uh, homosexuality and all that stuff that was going on. No, he was talking about the glory that they had before they allowed their misidentification to define them. Because before that, Sodom was one of the most rich influential cities on earth and they squandered it. And, and Ezekiel, the prophet in the Old Testament has the guts to look ahead in time and see a day where Sodom is restored to her former glory. Why? Not because she did anything, but because he went in and ransomed that which was lost. Ransom has become one of my favorite words lately. Within the right context. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know how to end this. Um, I'm, I'm going to pray. There's no, you know, I know all y'all in here. None of y'all need a salvation call. Uh, maybe you do online if you're listening to this later, whatever. Um, just, just live like you're in the Father's house because you're in the Father's house. It's really, it's really easy. It's really easy. It's harder to run from God than it is to live with God because one of those is right. But, but I want to pray 
what I'm teaching you tonight and what we've been talking about lately, we're on the cusp of seeing this in a, this is a revolution. Can you, can you imagine, what happens when the old timers, because the reason I teach at the depth that I teach is so that you can never leave here and say, I just don't know about that. If you're going to leave here and say, I just don't know about that, you're going to have to do jump rope and hula hoops through scripture and history and fathers and scholars and primarily the spirit. You know what I'm saying? So this is why I teach like I do. But there, there is a revolution happening in this place that I promise you when it starts to take hold, there is going to be, we would call it revival, renewal. So y'all pray with me. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing right now. But Lord, I thank you for revelation. I thank you for uh, providing us with such in-depth scholarship in our day and age. This is something we don't thank God enough for. That, that we can see historically the truths of Scripture in a way that we have never seen them before because we didn't have the information. But, but Lord, Lord, we're seeing this in a, in a different light. Yahweh, I thank you. You created us within the family. That you did not create us as lower than. You created us like and as. And by that act alone took responsibility for the family. You didn't create servants because if we were servants, if we were slaves, there'd be no responsibility to come get us back and you could wipe the slate clean. But if we're kids, there's no mountain you won't climb up, shadow you won't light up coming after me. There's no wall that you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. That if we're kids, no height, no depth, nothing in the earth, above the earth or below the earth, nothing can separate us from the love of God who is in Jesus our Savior. So Yahweh, I pray this week we'll process this stuff. I pray that this will begin to morph how we see everything. And I pray that every seed that you're planting in us will begin to bear fruit in a major way. We love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.